Chapter Six of Dead Love Has Chains by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. Daisy's life narrowed to strictly domestic limits in Hertford Street. She had left her habit at Cranford with the hunters and shooting dogs, all things belonging to the life that she and Conrad had led together in frankest friendship, almost as brother and sister. He had brought a couple of hacks to London, and he rode in the row before breakfast but Lady Mary had set her face rigidly against park riding for Daisy Meredith. "'I let you have your own way about her in Hampshire,' she told her son. "'But I don't want you to go on spoiling her now we are in London, where I really can't do without her.' Conrad gave way without a struggle, and his mother assured herself that he was not in love. Her lover would not have been so reasonable. He told Daisy that she should ride to hounds in October, and whenever there were ladies on his motor she was one of the party.' There was no desertion of his rural comrade. Conrad was always kind after his fraternal fashion, but he was tremendously in request and had very little time to spare. He went to dances that Daisy did not hear of, choice balls in great houses, where from five and twenty to fifty of the fine fleurs of young manhood were entertained at a sumptuous dinner in order that they might condescend to dance. Daisy thought herself lucky if she went to three balls in a season, chaperoned by one of Lady Mary's good-natured friends. She used to awake in the warm summer night, hearing carriage wheels rolling up and down the narrow street, and picturing to herself the brilliant scene in Park Lane, or Stanhope Street, or Berkeley Square, or Grosvenor, or Belgravia, and picturing Conrad Harling as the grandest, handsomest, most utterly delightful young man there. It was after one of the biggest balls of the year when the summer and the season were at the zenith that Conrad expressed himself more enthusiastically than usual. It was the finest ball he had ever seen. I suppose the flowers were something wonderful, suggested Daisy. Fairyland, a week's food for an East End parish squandered on lilies and roses. Walls of roses, pyramids of lilies. Words cannot paint the splendor. And the supper inquired Lady Mary. Gunter cum gargantua, an endless web of peaches and asparagus and ortolans and quails, young turkeys stuffed with truffles, ham stewed in champagne, everything expensive that a greedy man could imagine. I took a turn in the green park when I came away and saw the tramps lying asleep in the pale green light with open mouths and faces the color of death. Lady Mary sighed and Daisy sighed. To them, as to Conrad, the contrast was dreadful. Everybody feels the same sharp pang and forgets all about it three minutes afterwards. And the people, inquired Daisy, were all the pretty people there? All, married and single, and one over. Who was that? The new beauty. It seems I ought to have heard of her, though she only came to London a week ago, after all the drawing-rooms were over. She was supposed to have been presented in Dublin last winter, a dowager told me. As if it mattered when, where, ever, or never. She looks as if she had dropped from a star. Too ethereal for earth. Did you dance with her? Daisy asked with a throb of heart pain. Two waltzes. She waltzes divinely. I felt like a cyclops embracing a sylph. You haven't told us who she is, said Lady Mary with whom the who was more essential than the what. Oh, she is quite, quite, don't you know, an only daughter with a young stepmother. 
Her father is Sir Michael Thelliston, the general who distinguished himself by his management of that little Gold Coast scrimmage the other day, or at least made people believe it of him. Is she an only daughter? An only child. The stepmother is a gushing person and told me all about her husband and all about Irene. That's her name, and she looks it. I want you to call upon Lady Thelliston, ma'am, at your earliest convenience. This afternoon, if you like. Lady Mary smiled at him across the cosy round table. They breakfasted in the library, a room with an old-fashioned bow window opening into a morsel of garden, which was full of flowers that were brought there in their beauty and taken away directly they had done blooming, like young beauties in a sultan's seraglio. Lady Mary smiled and told herself that the spark had been found, the young heart had taken fire. This new beauty had only to appear and to conquer, where her garden of girls had been impotent to charm. "'Is Miss Thelliston much prettier than all the other pretty girls you know?' she asked. "'Prettier? Oh, I don't know how to measure prettiness. She is almost too exquisite to be mortal. Like those marvellous orchids that seem too beautiful to be only flowers. You talk as Romeo talked of Juliet. Do I?' What would I not have given for Juliet's balcony last night, to have had a long jaw with her after the ball? Well, I'll call upon Lady Thelliston, since I suppose they are newcomers. Quite new, mere babes in the wood from a society point of view. He has been fighting all his life in India, Egypt, Africa, always doing well, according to the wife, but never coming to the front as he did in the West African row. Call this afternoon, ma'am, if you please. I should like to know what you think of the stepmother. Do you know where they live? Yes, in a slip of a house in Chapel Street, with a front that looks like a ladder of flower boxes. How did you come to know the house? She rides every morning. In point of fact, I rode with her this morning. I walked my horse that way and saw her mount. She has an Arab that her father brought from India for his wife, who had been married before, by the way, to another soldier, and the wife doesn't like the horse, in point of fact, can't ride. And so her stepdaughter has the reversion of him. And she told you all this in two waltzes, exclaimed Daisy. The stepmother told me, Miss Thelliston is not loquacious. Does the young lady ride alone? No, her father rides with her, but he was under the weather this morning and she had only her groom. She was dancing at three o'clock and in the row before eight. She is not one of your rest-cure girls who lie in bed reading French novels till it's time to dress for lunch. I hope there are no such girls, said Lady Mary, with whom getting up early was a part of religion. Conrad could scarcely be more eager about his mother's visit to Lady Thelliston than she herself was to become acquainted with the girl who had attracted her son. The history of Conrad's future life must needs be colored by the woman he loved and married. That he should choose wisely, now in the flower of manhood, he who had so unwisely chosen in his early youth was of infinite importance. She had been told that he must not be thwarted in a second love affair, that to keep the balance of that fine mind, now perfectly adjusted, there must be no new love trouble. He had loved with an intensity of passion rare in early youth, a concentration of purpose that indicated unusual strength of will and unusual sensitiveness. To cross his will now, to come between him and the desire of his heart, might be fatal. His doctors had signified as much and his mother thought of this sudden fancy with a thrill of fear. He had talked of the new beauty with boyish lightness, too openly, perhaps for real feeling, but a fancy begun so lightly might grow into passion, 
and, oh, what a lifetime of joy or sorrow might have begun among the roses and lilies of last night's ball. Romeo's tragedy of swift, sudden love began at such a festival, among the lights and music in the joyous crowd. Mary Harling felt that her peaceful days were over. She was on the threshold of a passionate drama, the drama of her son's destiny. Was the girl a lady? That is the first question a woman of Lady Mary's milieu asks. Sir Michael Thelliston's daughter was at least of decent birth, and must have been decently brought up. But Lady Mary had met with girls of superior lineage and expensive education who were not ladies. Those were, of course, the exceptions that proved the rule. But what if this girl were an abnormal specimen and not a lady? Conrad had declared that she was quite, quite, and after all that he had suffered for the sad mistake of his boyhood he was surely, of all men, the least likely to be captivated by the loveliest girl in London if she were bad style. Bad style was Lady Mary's bête noire. She went about the world with a suspicious eye, finding it in unexpected places. That girl on the steamer, for instance, with a hideous phrase, Don't give me away, in the midst of her tragedy. She had not forgotten her shudder of disgust even in a moment of pity. That girl was undoubtedly bad style, and all that had happened to her in Kashmere had been more or less the result of bad style. A chaperone with neither morals nor manners, a lover who was not a gentleman, the kind of life Lady Mary had read about in Anglo-Indian stories. Slang was interwoven with Conrad's speech, but slang had to be forgiven in a man, like smoking and sporting papers and motors and bulldogs. But a slangy phrase from a woman's lips was intolerable. Lady Mary went alone to pay her visit. She often took Daisy with her on such pioneering calls when she had been asked to be civil to some friend of her friend's, but this was too solemn an occasion. She wanted to be alone, to have all her senses about her. She wanted to weigh the girl and the stepmother in her judicial balance, which she could hardly do if Daisy and the girl were keeping up a trivial chatter at her elbow. She went early in the afternoon, wishing to be the only visitor. She looked up disapprovingly at the tall, narrow house, the ladder of flower-boxes, scenting bad style in that flamboyant façade. There were too many flowers, and the effect was garish. Yet Lady Mary liked colour, and would have admired the joyous dazzle of tropelium and lobelia, pink geranium and sulphur marguerites, on any other façade. She went into the house with a sinking heart. It had come too soon, the manhood's love which she feared, the love that must be satisfied. In the narrow entrance hall and on the narrower staircase everything was gay and pretty. The white woodwork, the white wallpaper, over which gigantic pink roses clustered and clambered, the moss-green velvet pile that covered every inch of the stairs and landing. In the drawing-room where the visitor found herself alone there was the same gay color. It was the house of a petite maîtresse, a house like a bonbonnière, and it seemed almost too diminutive to be a real house after the spaciousness of the old family mansion in Hertford Street, where all Lady Mary's audacities in the way of color had failed to give an air of gaiety. This box of a house on the sunny side of the street sparkled and glowed like a bed of summer roses. The stepmother appeared before the visitor's eager eyes had time to disentangle the elements of prettiness, china, watercolors, miniatures, bonbon boxes, hothouse flowers, scent bottles, fans. "'How more than sweet of you to come so soon!' Lady Thelliston exclaimed with outstretched welcoming hand. "'Mr. Harling told us he would ask you to call, 
but we thought even if you were so good as to come, it might be ages first. I like to know all my son's friends, Lady Mary said in a quiet voice. He, he so much enjoyed his dance with Miss Thelliston. He says she waltzes divinely. Even in saying these few words, she had time to discover that the stepmother had been remarkably handsome, and that her complexion came out of bottles. As a work of art, she was faultless. Hair, figure, hands, eyebrows. But Mary Harling shivered at the thought of her as Conrad's mother-in-law. Isn't she wonderful? Buried alive in an out-of-the-way corner of the south of Ireland ever since she began to grow up, and yet the most delicious dancer, and more accomplished in every way than one girl in a hundred. Is Sir Michael Thelliston an Irishman? Intensely Irish, though I'm happy to say a long life in India has only left him a suspicion of their dreadful accent. And Miss Thelliston was educated at home, in her father's house, questioned Lady Mary, wanting to find out everything about these people, but painfully reminded of previous visits in strange drawing-rooms to inquire about the character of an upper servant. My poor Michael has no Irish home. He sold every acre ages ago when he saw things were going from bad to worse. Our sweet Irene has been vegetating under the care of a spinster aunt, Roman Catholic and a bigot at that. Lady Mary was dumb. She had been seized with an inward trembling, which made her look forlornly at the nearest gold and crystal scent bottle, wondering whether it held eau de cologne or any other reviving essence. It was not her father's fault that she was not having a good time in India. The climate was her only enemy. He sent her to Kashmir, but even that divine climate didn't suit her, so there was nothing to be done but send her home. It was before our marriage, and the poor man had no one to advise or help him. And then came the West Coast War, and his regiment left India, a month after our wedding day. Hard lines for me, wasn't it? Lady Mary murmured something with dry lips, and Lady Thelliston, always charmed to talk of herself, went on blandly. But it was all for the best and the little African war did more for Michael than Burma or Waziristan, and he got his KCB just in time, after a long, hard-working career and very few chances. I came home to find a house and furnish it, and get everything ready for my dear old man. And the first thing I made him do for me when he came from Africa was to take me to Ireland to see my new daughter. Again a murmur from dry lips, a despairing look in a face that seemed frozen. Lady Thelliston, admiring her own coiffure in a narrow panel of looking-glass, meandered on complacently. What a revelation! I expected a clumsy, overgrown, potato-fed girl with a thick brogue and no manners. And I found a gem of the first water. A girl pretty enough to make what people call the match of the season. I thought of Tom Moore's lovely song. Full many a gem of purest ray, don't you know? And I insisted on bringing her to London with us. She has only been here three weeks, and she can hardly walk in the park in peace. People stare atrociously, and I saw women standing on chairs to look at her last Sunday, the women who come on Charabon, from Brixton. Enfin, my stepdaughter is talked about everywhere as the new beauty. Is she pleased with her success? Lady Mary asked, finding a voice at last, a voice that sounded not her own. If she is, she doesn't show it. She's rather a curious girl. If she were not so lovely, I should call her strong-minded, added Lady Thelliston, as if the union of mind and beauty were impossible. The door was opened quietly, 
and the new beauty appeared, tall and slender, with loosely coiled hair that held the sunlight and dark eyes that were like deep waters. She was the girl Mary Harding expected to see, but glorified. The troubled countenance, the sullenness of despair, the slovenly garments had obscured much of that delicate beauty, and there had been the indefinable suggestion of a lost woman that had shocked and pained even a heart inclined to pity. Today she looked as pure as a June lily, her simple white frock perfection, her coiffure admirable, her pose graceful and dignified. Mr. Harding did not forget his promise, said the stepmother, smiling at her. Lady Mary, this is my daughter, Irene, who greatly enjoyed her dances with Mr. Harling. It is so seldom one's partners are as good as Mr. Harling, the girl said quietly, while Lady Mary looked at her in silence. The girl's calm outlook and steady accents took her breath away. That she could stand before her there, smiling, unabashed, with the air of a young princess accustomed to adulation, disgusted the woman who had been kind to her in her day of shame. She did not consider that there had been time for Irene Thelliston to prepare her mind for this encounter, to muster all that she had of courage or of audacity to face the situation. Nor did she reckon with the defiant attitude of a girl who had lately discovered that she was eminently beautiful and had the world at her feet. What an actress, thought Lady Mary, and she was thankful for the loquacity of the stepmother, who expatiated upon last night's ball. The pretty people who were there, the Harridans and horrors who ought not to have been there, the Ortolans and Peaches, the scraggy shoulders and painted faces, the band, the rose-wreathed staircase, and the royal guests. She gave a cover to Lady Mary's silence and enabled her to make her escape with a somewhat hasty adieu. While Lady Thelliston rang the bell, the girl followed the visitor to the landing as if by an instinct of politeness. But directly they were outside, the mask dropped, and something of the old trouble came into the dark eyes and trembled on the lips. But the girl spoke no word. She only looked at Lady Mary very earnestly and made the sign of the cross, an instant before the butler appeared to conduct the guest to the door where the unexceptionable footman and the unexceptional Victoria waited. The visit had not lasted a quarter of an hour, but Mary Harding went out into the sunshine, dazed, her mind paralyzed. Home, she told the servant as she sank into her seat, and footman and coachman wondered. Home was all she wanted. She was not equal even to driving round the park. She wanted to shut herself in her own room, her bedroom, where nobody but her maid would come, and to think out the situation. He must not marry her, he must not marry her. The words repeated themselves in her brain like the strokes of a hammer. And then came that other thought. He must not be thwarted. There was the horror of it. And then there was her oath, the only vow that she had ever made upon that sacred symbol. In her well-ordered life there had been no need of oaths, no secrets to keep, until her son's breakdown obliged silence. She remembered how the girl had pushed the crucifix into her reluctant hand, and how her lips had rested on the sacred form. Could that distracted girl, bowed to the dust by her disgrace, ashamed, and angry with the fate that had put shame upon her, could that crouching figure, those eyes hiding from the light, be one and the same as the dazzling vision of today, so pure-looking and ethereal? The oath bound her. She could give her son no word of warning, for what manner of warning would serve if it were less than a revelation of the girl's history? What other obstacle could be put in the way of ardent love? 
unless she could tell him that the girl he admired was a fallen creature, she could not hope to influence him. She could only hope what most people hope in the face of a threatened misfortune, that the danger would blow over. This sudden fervor, this impetuous fancy for a lovely face, might pass and leave no permanent impression. Was it not, quote, too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like the lightning, which doth cease to be ere one can say it lightens? End quote. She tried to believe that her son's ardor indicated a caprice and not a passion. But if it were otherwise, if he were to fall seriously in love with Irene Thelliston, well, she had weapons, even if tied on one hand by her oath, and on the other by her dread of opposing her son's will. She would fight for her beloved. It should be war to the death between her and this audacious girl, who could presume to meet her with a placid smile, pure and innocent-looking as Mary when she listened to the divine messenger. She wondered if in every crowded ballroom, in every throng of girlish faces, there were secrets as foul as this. I must fight for my son, she said to herself, and then began to meditate upon the weapons she could use. Could she carry him to the other end of the world with her, pretend an ardent desire to visit the Antipodes, and persuade him to take her there? He was so kind, so indulgent to all her wishes, that if he were fancy-free it would be the easiest thing to make him forego all the pleasures of an English winter, the hunting and shooting that his soul longed for, and take upon himself the toil and burden of a journey round the world to do her pleasure. But if he were no longer fancy-free, if his heart were touched, to propose such an exile would be to ensure a refusal. He would see through the maneuver and resent the attempt to part him from his enchantress. No, it was to the enchantress herself she must appeal, even if she had to sue in forma pauperis, urging the inferiority of such a marriage for the new beauty. The girl who was expected to make the great match of the season could very well afford to refuse a commoner with thirty thousand a year. She would appeal to Miss Thelliston's vanity, to her ambition, to her great greed of wealth, or, remembering her impressions on board the Electra, and believing that there was some good in the creature whose remorse for sin had been so keen an agony, she would take a higher ground as a mother pleading for her son. She would appeal to the girl's better feelings. You have all the world before you to choose, she might say. Let this man go. What can it matter to you? End of chapter 6